This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. So, so currently I'm teaching in a in what we call a seminary, but it's very different from a Christian seminary. It's 18-year-olds who take a year off between high school and college to just learn Judaic studies. So they'll have classes in Bible, but also in uh, Jewish philosophy, in the Talmud, in Jewish law. So their schedule is very, very packed, and they usually have classes from, uh, let's say, 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night, something in that ballpark with a break for lunch. So it's a very long day. Wow because they're really devoting just a year to learn Judaic studies. And most of them are coming with with a, a substantial amount of years of learning some Judaic studies. So it's not that they've never opened the Bible before. They've probably learned Bible in school because they mostly have gone to Jewish schools where that's accepted. But they often, as, as we all do, they've read the Bible as kids. So mostly what I'm trying to do in the classroom with them is to make them think through stories that are familiar or laws that are familiar, but from an adult perspective. So for example, one of, in one of my classes, which is called Loyalty and Betrayal in Tanakh, in the Bible, we were working through Genesis. And I wanted to challenge these girls to think through the, um, the tensions within marriage that we see in Genesis. And it turns out that if you're a child and you read the stories of Abraham and Sarah or of Isaac and Rebecca, then you don't really think through what is it like to be in the relationship that these people are in. What does it require? What are the challenges? What are the what are the hmm. achievements even that are being described in the story? Because as children, you just think, oh, I have a father and a mother and they do or don't get along. But you don't think through what is required in order to keep a family together. Um, and so I'll just... I'll tell you about one thing that was really shocking to me that I had never thought of until I was teaching these stories in this way, that we know that God only uh, promise the God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. And we know that he and Sarah are married for many, many years with this promise in the background that Sarah herself has never heard directly from God. She's presumably only heard about it from Abraham. And First of all, there's that tension between one spouse gets a direct word from God and the other one has to rely on the word of of the other Mm. spouse, right? That already creates tension between them. But then secondly, we know from later on in the story, and especially if you compare it to the stories of Rebecca and Rachel, that Sarah herself is barren. But Abraham and Mm -hmm. Sarah don't know that. And the reason why they don't know what the problem is or who's the one who's barren is only because... Abraham doesn't take any other wives. I mean, later on in the story, after Sarah, ha- he he takes Hagar, and then and then he later, even later on in the story, he takes on other wives. But for the seventy-five years that they're together, and they have this promise from God that they're going to have a son, they know that the two of them together haven't had a son. But the fact that Abraham is so loyal to Sarah, and he doesn't take on another wife, which is actually pretty common at the time, right? It's surprising that he doesn't take on another wife, you can say. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the fact that he doesn't take another wife means that they actually face this problem, this difficulty, this challenge together. So the fact that he does this incredible act of loyalty is not only uh, does it mean that they stick together, but it also means that they can face the challenge of not having a child together. Um, and they don't have to know which one of them is the one who can't have a child. They can just keep praying and, and asking and waiting together that they will have a child. Uh, and you don't really think about it because you know the end, right? You know the end that it turns out that Sarah is barren and then in the end she receives, she gets a child from God. But when you think about the story on the background of the society that these people were living in and the choices that they're making that are different than the choices that other people are making, then first of all, you can appreciate Abraham's loyalty much more. And second of all, you can see the benefits to their to their marriage, to their relationship, the fact that he made this loyal decision to stick with Sarah. What's amazing is what breaks the the union between them. What breaks their loyalty? And I, the right, I asked my students to think through what could have been Sarah's motivation to bring another woman into their marriage. Right? It's kind of shocking. You could see why Abraham would have considered doing something like that because maybe he would want to figure out. Well, maybe I could have a child mm-hmm. with somebody else. And since they both so much want to have children, that's like the clear message that they both really, really want a child. Um, you have to ask, okay, why does Sarah come up with this weird, this weird suggestion that someone else should have a child with her own husband? Uh, I think in general, reading these stories about all the different patriarchs and matriarchs and how much having children is on their minds, how much it's something that they want is in itself uh, a reminder and a, and a, like a mirror for us because I think we live in societies that prioritize a lot of other things other than having children. And it's not clear to me that we would come with the same bitter demand that Abraham turns to God when he says, like God says, oh, like um, he promises him that he's going to have He's going to, his children are going to be so many and he's going to be so powerful and he's going to bless the nations. And Abraham comes back with like, yeah, but you haven't given me a son, right? Like, where's the son you promised me? Just the bitterness that you hear in his voice. <laughs> yeah. The schmuck Eliezer of Damascus is going to exactly, get Exactly, right. <laughs> like the, the bitterness and the pain that you hear, which is not usually the way Abraham talks to God about this particular issue of having children. It's, and Sarah, too, the way she talks about it, it's just clear that to them that's, I mean, not only have they been waiting for so many years, but they just consider that the most important thing in their lives. Um, anyway, so back to the question of why does Sarah do this? It seems yeah. to me that until she makes this suggestion, it's clear that, the, that, that God has chosen both of them, meaning they leave Haran together. They're on this journey together. And the Midrash, at least the Jewish Midrash, makes a lot out of the fact that Abraham and Sarah are in this religious journey together. So the Midrash says there's a there's a verse that says that that they were that they came from Haran with the souls that they that they created or the souls that they made in Haran. And the, the Midrash reads this to say that they were educating people, that they were teaching people their, about their encounter with God and about their monotheism. 
And the Midrash says that Abraham would teach the men and Sarah would teach the women. So regardless of what you think about gender separation, it's clear that the, that the rabbis are reading it as if Sarah herself is, ju- is just as much a religious leader and a religious teacher as Abraham is. And that's the sense that I, I, that's what I understand is standing in the background of Abraham assuming that of course he's going to have, if he was going to have a son, he's going to have a son with Sarah because he can't imagine that he would have a son with a, 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 a woman who's less worthy, right? He thinks, of course, the promise was given to both of us because not only are we already married, but also because we're, we're, we see so much eye to eye about the kind of education we would want to give our children and the way we'd want to raise them and the future that we would plan for them, right? He really sees her as, as an actual partner. And I think what breaks this story is that Sarah loses confidence in her own role as, as, a, as a leader, as a spiritual guide, as someone who could be the person that God chose or sees as appropriate, at least, for Abraham to have a child with. And I think that's why she suggests, well, maybe you should have a child with someone else. Now, it's true that what she says, she says that maybe if Hagar has the child, right? So she has this idea that she could be built up. Oh, you have to translate that. Right, Ulai Banemi Menes, maybe yep. I will be built up from her. Built up and through her, yeah. Right, through her, which is not so clear what she means, but it seems to imply that she thinks that her future or her name will be remembered through the son that comes from Hagar. And it's amazing that in the next, that later on in the story, when, if we skip forward and we compare two stories here, later on, when uh, Sarah tells Abraham to get rid of Hagar's son, Avishmael, then God says, Everything that Sarah says, do what she says. And people often read that as if to imply that God is saying just in general, whatever Sarah says, you should do. But it's fascinating that in this story, when Sarah suggests to bring Hagar into the family, and we can imagine that this was not so obvious to Avram, and he's not really sure this is a good idea. We don't hear God stepping in and saying, yeah, sure, whatever whatever Sarah says, you should do whatever she says. And I think that that's because God thinks this was a big mistake. Like, he does not think this was a good idea. And what turns out yeah. is that Sarah's just wrong, right? She thinks, oh, Hagar will have the child, but I'll feel connected to the child in some way. I'll feel like my future or my name will be remembered through this son. Maybe she thinks she'll teach him or raise him or whatever it is. And it's a complete failure because I guess Bereshit is teaching us, Genesis is teaching us that human psychology doesn't work that way, right? If, if she sees Hagar pregnant in front of her eyes, it's very clear to her that the child is Hagar's child and not her own. And she can't just reach out, grab the baby away from Hagar and say, oh, but now he's mine or now I'm going to raise him instead of you. Definitely not without getting rid of Hagar. And it turns out that Sarah doesn't feel any satisfaction, any sense of of uh, a fulfillment that she's looking for in having a child. She doesn't feel that when Hagar has the son. And in fact, she becomes incredibly bitter against Abraham. She turns against him and she says, God is going to judge between us. Like you've done this terrible thing to me and God's going to judge you. God's going to judge who was right, which is crazy because, of course, she was the one who suggested it. 
Avram didn't suggest it for 75 right, right. years. There, and they, he's over here going, I just listened to you. Exactly. <laughs> right. And that, I think it's, it's so sensitive to the psychology that it's so true that in a marriage, if you let someone make a really bad decision, if you go along with that really bad decision, they'll probably hold it against you, right? Because Avram doesn't say to her, no, I'm loyal to you and I'm going to be married to you and we're going to go get through, go get through this difficulty together. We're going to have a child together the way God promised us that we will. Because Avram doesn't argue back and say, we're going to stick to the promise that God gave us and we're going to wait it out till it works out. Because he, he goes along with the, mm. with the current suggestion that Sarah gives, then she turns in the end, turns back on him, right? In the end, she feels like he was disloyal to her. How could you have betrayed me? How could you have done this terrible wrong to me? And I think that it says a lot about the way marriage works and in general, how loyalty works, that God is asking them to be loyal to him. That yeah, He's giving them a promise, but he doesn't, there's no, there's no timestamp on it. They have no idea when things are going to work out. It's a little bit like the test that later on Avram's going to have with with sacrificing his son, right? It's a it's a test of loyalty. It's like how mm. let's see how much you can stick to me, how how much you can trust that I'm going to make things work out for you in the end. And Avram, for a long time, he holds on to this promise, and he and he stays firm that God is gonna is gonna give them a child in the end, is gonna come through for them in the end. And for a long time, Sarah is also able to stick with it. But at some point, I think she loses confidence that the story is about her, right? She she thinks that, okay, we don't have any in- indication that she thinks God has changed his mind or that God's not really going to give Avram a son. But she becomes convinced that God's going to give Avram a son and not her. And that she has to find some other way to find some connection to this story of this uh, promise that God has given there's going to be a son. But it seems like her solution is not really a solution that's tenable because it's a solution that really brings somebody else to replace her. It says, well, somebody else is going to is going to take my role. And therefore, she becomes really bitter. She feels like she's been kicked out and she blames Avraham for not being loyal to her when she really was the one who wasn't confident enough to say, yes, I have a, a place in this story and I have a role in this story. I just have to wait till God makes things work out for me. Um, so, so I think that, I think that this is the kind of story that I use in order to get my students to realize that Tanakh is about, it's, it's mostly about questions that adults need to deal with, right? You learn the stories as a child when you have to, when you just, you gain familiarity with them and they shape your, I think they do shape your values to some extent, even without noticing when you're a child, right? So at least when I was being raised, like we were taught that, that the that the women, that the matriarchs all really wanted children. And I think it does shape your values in some way that you think of that as a priority. You think of it as a high priority. But then as an adult, you you have to think through what it would really require in order, what it would require to be willing to wait out and wait for something that you really, really want for so long. And how would you keep your relationships going? And how do you keep... Uh, your own confidence in your own role? How do you bolster your own confidence that, yes, I can really do this? Because we think that the that in a situation like that, where you really want something to come true, you'd think that you would lose faith in God first, right? You'd first say, oh, God can't really do this, mm. which is 
a little bit what Avram is saying, like, God, what, like you promised it, where is it? Why, why isn't it happening? But the other flip side is that you also need to have confidence in yourself that you really that that promise that Abraham heard is really directed at you too. Right. And I think that Sarah is actually in the posi- much more similar position to most of us than Abraham is because we don't hear God speaking to us directly. And a lot of the promises that God makes in the Bible about the way he runs the world and the justice that he think that he brings to the world, like those kinds of general promises that are made to us too. They're not just made to a particular person in a particular time. Like we didn't hear them directly. So we're in a much more similar situation to Sarah than we are to Abraham. And then the question of, how do I maintain faith that really this is that this promise was really directed towards me and not just towards other people? We have to maintain that confidence in our own place in the fact that God is directing his word towards us in some way. Uh, so I think those are the kinds of questions you have to think about more as an adult and you don't really realize when you're a child. I think the brilliance of that approach is that you, when you're in the story, A, like the way you describe the story, it could be a television series today. Like, you, you know, you could take that storyline and play it out and people would be like, that's crazy, but it's kind of true. Like, we, you know, we've we've seen this with people in our lives even, uh, those kind of social dynamics. Um, but also it kind of, it very quickly does away with what I call the mythology of patriarchy that... There were just men who were in charge of everything, who were calling the shots, and that's how it was back in biblical times. You're like, oh, no, it's a very mixed relations. And, uh, you know, women were calling the shots sometime, like in this one, uh, which is a strong echo of Eden. Again, where you had a man who had a commandment revealed to him, uh, and then a woman who takes things under control, and and even the same language. She takes and gives, uh, and he listens to her voice, et cetera. Right. And so it's it's playing out some very complex social dynamics. Um, now, where do you teach? Like where physically? Are you in Jerusalem? I'm in Jerusalem. Yes, I live in Jerusalem and I teach in Jerusalem. It's not, I teach in English okay, mostly, so these, but the stu- and the students come from abroad. Okay. They're visiting Israel for a year, usually. Some of them stay, but okay. most of them go back. Yeah, and how is their Hebrew, biblical and modern? It's a challenge. It really is a challenge. I, In the beginning, I thought that I would teach from the English because I knew that, that it would be easier for them to read the English and that they would be uh, more comfortable interpreting the text for themselves if they had it in front of them in English. But I noticed that my teaching abilities in English are much diminished because I don't. if I don't mm. notice the, the particular words that are being used then sometimes I feel like I miss out too much and it's harder for me to get excited about the story. For instance, a lot of what I was saying about the dynamics between um, Sarah and, and Abraham, I noticed because there's a really uh, fascinating word that's used. When Hagar um, becomes pregnant, it says, that her mistress became light in her eyes. Right? It's not the way, and if you read that in translation, what will they say? They say that she was contemptuous of her of her mistress or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when you read it in the Hebrew, you realize that there's such a brilliant play on words because why does her mistress become light in her eyes? Because she, Hagar, is becoming heavy with child. 
Like she is feeling really heavy. So she feels really important. And she feels like, of course, my mistress should serve me and I shouldn't serve her. It's not really even a criticism of Hagal's contempt. It's just saying, look, when women become pregnant, mm. they feel like they're doing an incredibly, incredible, amazing thing. They feel like they're bringing life into the world. And of course, that in their eyes, they feel like, okay, I'm not going to serve other people. I'm the one who feels sick. I'm the one who can barely move. So I can't be the one serving you now. And and Sarah understands that, mm. right? Like she, on the one hand, she's she's hurt. But on the other hand, she knows that this is also just the outcome of the actual situation that they're in. So it's not really a criticism as much as just an honest description of the way the way things are. Um, and I think yeah. if I if I had been teaching in English, I would have completely missed that, right? I would have completely hmm. missed the the Hebrew and the the double meaning, and then the psychology that it's describing. Um, so so in the end, I gave up on teaching English. That's the truth. I we we sit with a Tanakh in Hebrew, and I translate as we go along because I know that for the girls. That I'm teaching, it's going to be really hard to to understand what I'm saying without the translation. So I don't I don't just read and assume that they're going to know what's going on. I translate everything, but that way at least I get the excitement of reading the Hebrew and the nuance of mm. reading the Hebrew. Uh, and sometimes, I, like this particular example, I did point it out to them. And sometimes uh, I I don't point out the, but I just I just use it. Meaning I might just be referring to something that's right. repetitive in a more emphasized way or whatever it is. And I just, even without pointing out the Hebrew phrases, I'll just translate the way it seems. Um, there is also a challenge, which is, you see, sometimes I get stuck in my translation and then I'm kind of groping for the right word. So it's not, it's not perfect for sure. Not. Yeah. Well, and even like the term mistress in English, I have to stop and think like, now what does that mean again? Cause you know, as a kid, you hear it, and it seems to refer to like a guy's uh, side side hustle. Right, that's what I was trying to figure out. Uh, like maybe this is that's not, not the what it word. technically means. Yeah, yeah. Because then Hagar would be the mistress. No, no, it is a right word because the... oh, ex <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. confusing. Um, so, do you do you find that there are there are there are standard kind of maybe conceptual or ethical or moral stumbling blocks for students when when they get down the text they kind of realize oh this is what's this is describing more than I thought and and they're uncomfortable with it. Um, I don't know about uncomfortable. I'll have to think about that one, but. I'll definitely say this is about a completely different topic, not the topic that we've been discussing up until now. But I've been, tr when I teach Jewish philosophy, it's very Tanakh oriented. So it's hard for me to talk about any theological point or any moral point in the Jewish tradition without pressing my students. Well, first, what does the Bible say about this? That's just, it's just my approach. I mean, not everybody right. teaches Jewish philosophy that way. And a lot of Jewish philosophy Jewish philosophers themselves don't always bother to show that their own views are necessarily biblical views, right? So I'm really not claiming that this is the only way, but it's the way I do Jewish philosophy and the way I approach just my 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 view of philosophy in general is, okay, first, what does the Bible have to say? Does it have anything to say on this question? So in my Jewish philosophy class, one of my students asked me to talk about free will, the problem of free will. Right? Mm. And Ooh, yeah, yeah. not... It's, I have to admit that it's not my favorite topic to talk about because Amen. like William James, I'm always <laughs> a little bit unsure what's the practical ramification. And if there is no practical ramification, then 
I kind of doubt whether what we're, we know what we're talking about, right? Because we think that, that this is, is a big problem. That is the exact spiel I give students. <laughs> yeah, we think this is a big problem, but then this. it doesn't seem like there is a real problem in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so honestly, I don't, it's not a topic I would have chosen to talk about, but my student wanted to. She was clearly bothering her. So I said, okay, fine, let's talk mm-hmm. about it. But then I had to honestly tell them that, first of all, it doesn't seem to be such a problem in the Bible, meaning doesn't seem to be a problem at all. Meaning mm-hmm. there are examples that seem to imply some kind of foreknowledge that people then discuss in discussions of free will. But it doesn't seem that the people in the Bible, Moses or um, Jeremiah or Yechezkeh, it doesn't seem that they're bothered by this question, right? There is an alternative mm-hmm. question that they're very bothered by. And that was something that I raised for my students. There is an alternative question, which is, how much freedom can we have in face of the fact that we're so much influenced by our parents and by our society? Hmm. That is a problem. And especially it's a problem because in the 13 attributes of God, in the Yudgimelemidot, it says that God does um, reward people based on their parents' actions and, he's par- and, he, and he punishes people based on their parents' actions, right? To, at least to a certain number of generations. So we're told that the way God runs the world, right? It's a description of the way God runs the world and the way he He gives punishment and reward is that you're not judged completely on your own. You're not just a one individual who gets to, and God is only looking at your actions and that's the only thing that matters in trying to figure out what how your life is going to end up. But then what's amazing really is that on the background of this, Yechezkel has a whole chapter where he goes through all the different combinations possible, right? He says, okay, if you had a father who who was a bad person and then a child who is a good person, who who's is he how how are things gonna turn out for him? And Yechezkel says, no, he's only gonna be judged on his own actions. And he goes through all the other possible combinations. And the bottom line is, no, you're only judged on your own merit. Um, and and Jeremiah has only one line, but it echoes the same, he, he toes the same line. He says, yeah, mm-hmm. God, days will come when you'll stop saying that you're going to be punished based on your parents' uh, actions. And you'll understand what really is the way God rules the world, which is he only judges you based on your own actions. So first of all, we just have this tension between what we're told in in um in Exodus about God, the way God rules the world and the way the prophets see God ruling the world, running the world. And then it's, but it, whatever, however you, you work out the, the balance between these two or how you work out how they maybe could be both true to some extent. Um, it's clear that the main issue that, that the prophets are struggling with is, do, can you repent? Can you change? You've been raised a particular way or your society is going a particular direction. Can you change directions? Can you change route and become good even if they're evil? And that's a very different question than the usual way that we talk, that philosophers like talking about the free will problem, which is God knows everything. Can I have, can I have any free will? Right. It's a different question, but even, but that's not, that my students were, were still open to hearing. Okay, so the Bible has a different mm. question that it's interested in than the general than the usual free will problem. They were not able, like, we're not able to accept 
any impl- any indication that there's something that maybe God doesn't know. And I kept telling them, that oh, yeah, yeah. maybe that's their view, right? And maybe that's even a traditional Jewish view. And maybe there's good reasons, rational reasons or philosophical reasons or empirical reasons, whatever they are, to think that God knows absolutely everything that's going to happen in the future. But I told them, I don't mm-hmm. think that there's good indication for that in the Bible. And so I brought them, right. I brought them an example, right? It says, uh, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. He says, he tells them, he tells the people who live in Nineveh, in another 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, right? So there, it seems like God is saying, telling Jonah what's going to happen in the future. But then it turns out that they can do tshuva, they can repent. And then God says, okay, I'm right. not going to destroy Nineveh, right? And it even uses the word, that God regrets and decides, okay, I'm not going to. So what does that mean? Does it mean that God was just mm-hmm. wrong? Or does it mean that God didn't really know the future? Both of those options, either that he was wrong or that he didn't really know the future, are they should challenge our view that the Bible just assumes that God knows everything about the future. And then you have to work out, okay, that doesn't mean he doesn't know anything, right? Maybe he knows some things about the future. Maybe he knows the laws of nature and the laws of our psychology, but he doesn't know particular decisions that we make. He leaves that open to us, and therefore maybe there isn't anything to know until you choose. Um, so I think there's a lot to discuss. There are a lot of options there about what is the biblical view right. about because God clearly knows a great many things and is incredibly wise, is incredibly powerful, which must go with a lot of knowledge. But my students just could not, they could not accept that there could be something, anything that God doesn't know about the future. And the truth is that I, I felt like they were just not re- they were not willing to read the Bible on its own terms on this question, mm-hmm. meaning they weren't open to try to understand what the Bible does think because they were so, um, because they were so wedded to their own, to their own theological views, which I think are just, they're right. just not the theological views that are suggested in the Bible. And it's, a, I think it's a, it's our own limitations. And sometimes that prevent us from understanding rather than, something unclear about the Bible's view. I mean, maybe it's an unclear view. Maybe it's hard to work it out. But I think that sometimes we're not even trying because we're coming in with so many built-in assumptions. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I I mean, the exact same problem you know i i'll say like oh look here in babel god has to like go down and see what's happening and you know and then he has to send somebody down into sodom to see if the report is altogether true you know to what's come up and um and even if you want to suggest like i would probably suggest that the the tapestry of discussions of what god knows seems to indicate that he has all the power to know anything he wants to when and where he wants to and how he decides to but that means that no single instance actually describes in total like anything about God. Like we can't say, well, it says this in, in Jonah, therefore this is what we, this is what God knows and what God doesn't know. Um, there, there seems to be this rigorous uh, discussion going on throughout uh, the scriptures about um, what he, well, and the same thing with like, can humans decide, could Pharaoh determine, you know, could Pharaoh have turned on the 10th plague? You know, that question. Mm-hmm. Um but even there, that those for me, in a lot of ways, are trying to reduce, 
and it's a, it's a, like a typical thing that we were all doing at 18 to 25 years old where we'd like to like just get like, give me one black and white thing i can hang everything <laughs> on right uh if i can just figure out that thing then i can build a whole structure that makes sense um and the structure that that scripture keeps calling us back to is you have to trust a wise and loving God, right? Um, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the black and white thing. And then everything else is, uh, complex. So I'm a little surprised that what I would call just a straight up theological view is the problem because, you know, one of the things when I first started getting to know Jews and Judaism better in the last, you know, 20 years, the first thing Jewish scholars would tell me is Jews don't do theology. <laughs> like, we don't do that. We do practice. We don't do theology. And I was like, oh, nice. I wish Christians were more like that in some <laughs> ways, you know. Um, and yet you're telling me like the number one thing you're running into is like just a big theological lunk uh, that's preventing people from doing the work of looking closer at the text. Right. Well, it's interesting that when I when I did the research on this question in Jewish philosophy of free will, it was interesting that the main views were already out there in the Middle Ages. I don't think they're... Hmm. that they're really new, uh, fascinating options that have been suggested in the last few years. It could be that I missed them. It is possible. But I'm saying as far as I as I found, which means that maybe that means Jews are not really doing theology, or at least they haven't done it for a long time, right? So so that is, that is a possibility. Um, I would say that I think a lot of the inspiration that I got to read the Bible so honestly and to turn to the Bible for theological questions is from Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, right? So he wrote in, he wrote mostly in, in the last century. And I mean, the truth is before we got to free will, I was teaching in the Jewish philosophy class, I was teaching my students Berkowitz. And I mean, we were, mm. we were reading God, man in history. And there he says, look, the, the starting point of our theology, anything that we want to say Jewishly about God has to start with the Bible. And he, and in that book, I mean, the, the chapters that I was teaching them, he says that, um, that we have to, that we have to drop the rationalist uh, theology and try to understand when the prophets encounter God, what do they see? Like, what description are they giving us? What experience are they going through? And that's where I first encountered this difficulty of my students that they even couldn't accept Berkowitz, right? They couldn't read him because it was so difficult for them to accept that it could be that he's saying, as an Orthodox rabbi, uh, that that there's a real relationship with God, that God is put some limits on his power, on his knowledge, so that he could be in a relationship with human beings, so that human beings would have responsibility. Um, or even just to say, uh, drop all your preconceptions about what God is like, like, let's read the descriptions of the prophets about, like, it was just very, very difficult for them. So on the one hand, maybe Jews don't do theology. On the other hand, it seems like they're, they hold very strong views on theology. It's just that they're often not so biblical. I think. Oh, uh, that, I, same, same thing with Christians. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and maybe they're not doing a lot of theology, but they have very, very strong, in some ways, non-negotiable views. Um, even the ones that the one, and I talk about this all the time, but the one that my students really freak out over, and I have to be very careful, even how I introduce the topic, but, uh, and in Hebrew, this is completely uncontroversial, but the fact that God does evil to people, that he plans evil, that he relents from a ra, right? It's like, a, it's a verb used, uh, associated with God all the time. But again, the theological view, the European theological view of evil, well, I mean, it comes actually from the Greco-Roman tradition all the way through scholasticism. 
that evil and good are two opposite things and one can't have anything to do with the other. And I'm like, okay, well, buckle up because we're going to read a lot of texts that keep on talking about God doing evil. And there's just a wall, like they just can't get past it. Um, and so I, and I don't know what to do at that point. I usually throw up things like, well, here is what I consider the clear, repeated, uncontroversial view of some biblical, of multiple biblical authors. And here's our view. Like, which one do you want? <laughs> and with Christians, I don't know if it's the same with Jewish students, but with Christian students, they usually at least have to admit that they should probably want the biblical view. Um, even if they don't like it and even if they don't follow it. I wonder with Jewish students, are they like, eh, I'm going to go with rabbi so-and-so? Well, today when I was teaching this question of free will and I and I noticed my students being so uncomfortable with the idea that, that maybe God doesn't know what choices you're going to make, right? That's the only limitation we're putting on his knowledge. He knows the way the, run, the world runs. He runs the world. He, he's created the world, right? So he's incredibly powerful, incredibly knowledgeable. But there's one little thing that he leaves to you, which is your choice, right? That's the picture I was trying. And they were so uncomfortable with it. So I tried to, through the, their comments, I was trying to understand what what about it is so appealing, this view that God has to know mm-hmm. absolutely right, right. everything. Um, and I got a sense from them that they that they just wanted that security, meaning they told me things like, well, how can I pray to a God who who doesn't know absolutely everything? How can I rely on God to, to help me or to give me guidance if he doesn't know absolutely everything? And it made me think that maybe the Bible doesn't give as much security as some of this perfect God theology or absolute God theology does, because it does place a large responsibility on human beings. And that responsibility is scary if you're not ready for it, or if you haven't been raised in a way to think that that's something to look forward to, then that can be really unsettling. Now, I think, I think the biblical authors think that if you give people responsibility, right, the reason why free will is so important is because if you give people real responsibility, if God says, look, there's, there's a realm, there's a number of things in your life that are just up to you. Nobody's going to be able to do them for you. Then that's a motivation to be a better person because you know that nobody can step in and do it for you. But maybe if you were raised in a comfortable society where you think things go pretty well and your life has been pretty comfortable without you doing very much, then maybe you mm-hmm. feel like, um, like maybe you don't want to take responsibility, right? You think that things are pretty good the way they are with other people in charge and other people running things. So if you don't, if you're not a slave in Egypt who realizes that if you don't take responsibility, things are really bad, then maybe you don't have as much of an appreciation for responsibility for God giving you uh, the freedom to choose. And it made me realize that it's, that the things that the, that the Bible values and just assumes are things to, to aspire to are not always things that in a very comfortable setting you aspire to. <laughs> um, that, mm. and the, but it also made me realize that, yeah, that I think they're reading the Bible can be scary for people. They're realizing that the Bible thinks that, that we have real responsibility and that we can really choose whether to be good and evil. That to some people that's scary. They'd rather not hear that. They'd rather just think God, takes care of everything he runs everything and um and to hear that god is pushing some of the responsibility on them is something that they don't want to hear they don't want to think in that way yeah 
Yeah, and and then of course in the in the New Testament text you have Jewish thinkers who are selling both lines, right? They're saying, no, God does know everything. He does take care of everything, uh, but he still requires you to participate, right? And so like, I, so it's part of this discussion I'm hearing, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder how much Christian theology is actually kind of backfeeding some of this uh, nervousness and um, coming from the Western world. It could be. I don't think I know enough about the New Testament to say where it's come, if that's the source. Uh, but I also think that partly yeah, it's human psychology, right? Like the, the theological view, the fact that they're so convinced that this is the way our tradition uh, requires us to think about God, right? That could be that it has Greek sources or, mm. or Christian sources. And I don't, I don't know the details, but I also think that there's something strong in human psychology of just saying, look, like it's not up to me. Don't, don't look at me. I don't, don't make any demands of me because it's not my problem. Uh, like, I think it's comfortable and, if if people of if oh, Christians and as were, somebody who teaches teenagers cult- in the West, I oh sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that I think that if there are worked out theologies of God, I think partly the way the reason why people develop these theologies is because that's what because that's what they want to believe. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's this long this ongoing discussion of is are are these theologies basically. A, are attempts to domesticate God. Like where do they, they're, they're always trying to be faithful to something in the biblical text, but at, at what point do they cross over and try to domesticate who, what, who God is by claiming what he is? I guess that's the critique that usually runs uh, there. Um, what is the most exciting thing about teaching young Jewish women in Israel, uh, Jewish thought and Bible? I think the thing I most find it's exciting. A dramatic pause. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I had to think about it because I've told you some. Sorry. Yeah, I've ahead. told you some of my favorite <laughs> stories. Um, definitely talking about about the importance of childbirth and describing the feminine experience that we see in the Bible through mm. the stories of, of the female characters. That's exciting. I mean, partly I got to it not only based on my own favorite stories, but partly because I asked the students, who are your favorite characters? And it was interesting that a lot of the women chose female characters. So I realized that they're interested in that, that they want to think about it. And since they're 18 and they haven't been through major female crises yet, um, except for puberty, then it's not that they've lived through these experiences yet, but but they want to know what mm-hmm. what is it like to be a woman as an adult, as a Jewish woman, as a character, as a, as a he- heroine in the Tanakh. Um, but I think maybe I would say the other thing is that if you read the stories carefully and, and give the students probing enough questions, uh, they come up with very different interpretations. And that's, and that's exciting because it means that, that the stories themselves mm. are, are deep enough and relevant enough that, that they find echoes of their own lives and, they, and they're bringing different experiences to the story and therefore they see different things in the story. Um, so, so for instance, we were, we were reading the story of Dina and I was telling the story as Mm. if the brothers are, are loyal to Dina, right? That they are motivated to, to fight for her and to defend her name and defend the name of, of the, of the family, um, and, and the pride of the family, the respect of the family. And 
I was using this as a, I was comparing this story to the story later on where they sell Joseph. And I was saying, look, it seems like in the story of Dina, mm-hmm. all the bro- brothers are united. They all act as one. And we don't even have particular names of particular brothers. Later on, we hear fr- through Jacob's words that Le- Levi and Shimon were particularly leaders in that in that episode. But in the story, the way it's told in Genesis, we just get the, the sons of Jacob and they act all in, one, mm-hmm. in unison. Whereas in the story later on, in the story of Joseph, it seems like there's no unity, right? We First, we have this decision to sell Joseph and then... Reuben says, wait, let's do something else. And then Judah says, let's do something else. And there's all of these other voices. Uh, so I was comparing those two stories and I was saying, the story of Dina seems to be a story of loyalty. And one of the students told me, well, I don't think this is very loyal because they're not really thinking about what's good for Dina, right? We assume, I mean, she was raped and they're defending her. They're trying to save her. Of course, they're doing what's good for her. And one of my students said, I mean, we don't know the way she feels about this person. We don't know if after what happened, maybe she prefers to marry him. I mean, it's true that that's not the way we usually think about the outcome of rape. But my student said, Mm. listen, we don't know the way she feels because the story doesn't tell us the way she feels, which just strengthens the fact that the brothers. She has no voice, really. Right. That the brothers don't seem to. It's not that the. It's not that the, the Genesis is not telling us the way she feels. It's the Genesis is reflecting the way the brothers are acting, which is they don't seem to care that much about the way she feels either, which is not really, a, it's not a, it's not a positive statement of what they're doing because it, none of the story there seems to be a positive statement of the way they're acting. It's definitely a criticism, but it was something that I, because I was thinking through the lens of loyalty, I wasn't really thinking about, uh, are they really being loyal to their sister, right? Are they really benefiting her the way a loyal person would? And my student said, well, maybe they're just not. Um, so so I think I think that's probably the most exciting, which is especially when you're talking about family dynamics, all these, all um, most of my students are come from, I don't know if as large families, right? Probably not 12 children, but definitely they live in families where they have siblings and they, they, they and it helps them to think through their family dynamics and they bring their family dynamics to reading these mm. stories of Genesis. Uh, so it's so it's really exciting to see the way people read things differently and to try to figure out. Sometimes you, you think some interpretations are better than others, right? I, I wouldn't say that all interpretations are equally good, uh, but definitely there's room for, right. for more than one interpretation. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Avital Levy, we didn't even talk about your expertise in Western philosophy, <laughs> but thank you very much uh, for your time uh, walking us through those texts and your expertise and your wisdom. Thank you for having me and for your great questions. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.